Blog Talk Radio. you saw the president tried to say that this was going to go away. It didn't go away. And to your point, Joe, about testing, to back up a little bit on two fronts. Number one, if we had followed uh, the warnings of the World Health Organization, if we had not fired everybody in the pandemic office, we would have had testing early on. And perhaps some of his economic goals would be possible if we could do rapid tests across the country, if we could figure out if there are any asymptomatic carriers out there, we would have a roadmap. We would not be flying blind. And for some parts of the country, it might be possible to reopen a lot quicker. But we don't have that because the president botched that. So then it gets to a question for the Republicans. For Republicans who still won't speak out about what's right here, speak out about the science involved, because you got to pull back and you've got to look at this presidency. And this is what we've come to. We let it go. The Republicans let it go when he constantly attacked the media from the get go, called us crazy, called us oversensitive. Let it go. Wait, it's wait, wait, fine. Wait, but beyond that, he said that. The way we were covering this, right. the way we were warning Americans about 
this day coming and that it would get even worse. He said that coverage was a hoax. But I'm backing up to the beginning. Republicans let it go when he chipped away at our democracy, undermining the media, when he chipped away at our democracy and cozied up to dictators, when he chipped away at our democracy and worked with a foreign leader to get dirt on a political rival. Are we really going to find out the hard way? Are we going to find out the hard way that it is not okay to let a president run roughshod over our democracy and go completely unchecked? No. Are we going to find out the hard way? Are Republicans and Democrats and American citizens going to find out by watching their families get ill from a virus that the president tried to play down? Well, Mika. By getting ill from a virus that the president reopens the economy before it's possible scientifically. How far are we going to let him go? Well, Mika, you, you said, are they going to let him do this? They already have. There are a thousand people in America, over a thousand people now dead from a virus, from a pandemic that Donald Trump said was going to go away, that it only affected five people and it was going away, that it only affected 15 people and that it was going away, that it was going to magically go away and we didn't need to worry about it. And here we are again. We'll show you the numbers later on this morning. We'll show you the, the, the trend lines that we showed you yesterday. This is going to get much worse. And Jonathan Lemire right now in New York City, as I said, it's a war zone in New York's hospitals. This country that suffered so much on 9-11, that gave so much of its heart and soul on 9-11. New York City cops coming down with this. New York City firefighters coming down with this. Nurses and doctors, are those firefighters now on the front lines? Are those cops on the front lines? Hospital administration attacks. And guess what? As we look at an abandoned Times Square in a crisis that the president said was going to go away, we have nurses who are dying, by the way, nurses that the New York Post reports are forced to wear garbage bags because they don't have protective gear. They are literally draping garbage bags over them in this fight against a pandemic that the White House has been warned could kill over 2 million Americans, more Americans than died in every war since 1776. And yet this president is still whistling past the graveyard and it's nurses and doctors and our senior citizens who are effectively being told to go to hell. The image you just showed of Times Square there, stark and empty, uh, is, is eerie and, and scary, but also representative of a state that's doing its part. People are staying home. They are social distancing themselves. They're doing what they can. And at least right now, they have largely been, it seems, abandoned uh, by the president, who up until a short time used to live here. Uh, Trump, of course, now, let's remember, he doesn't live in New York anymore. He changed his residence to Florida a few months back. Uh, Joe, you said that the stats are sobering. Yesterday in New York City, the mayor's office put out a statistic. At 10 a.m. yesterday, there had been 199 deaths from this coronavirus in New York. By 6 p.m., it had surged to 280. So that's only oh an eight-hour gap, and 81 people died. That's more than 10 per hour. Uh, you showed it there. We have reports of nurses having to wear plastic garbage bags because they don't have enough equipment. That same hospital where that's happening, a worker died. At a couple of hospitals, Bellevue Hospital, New York University Hospital, we are seeing them make makeshift morgues. They're, they're closing mm. down streets so they can build up tents, so they can be prepared to take the influx of bodies uh, that are expected to come because of this death. We have talked about testing. It was just a week or so ago where the president and the vice president promised drive-through testing at Walmarts and Targets. That hasn't happened yet, at least not in any sort of large-scale effort across the country. Uh, the president yesterday... By, 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 by the way, as you're talking about testing, Jonathan Lemire, yeah. in the county where Donald Trump uh, loves to get, travel to, Palm Beach County, mm -hmm. you can't get tests. <laughs> the president said wow. on March 6th, if you want a test, you can get a test. In all of Palm Beach County, there are no tests to be had in the third largest county in the state of Florida. This is 
in the state of Florida where senior citizens are, uh, so many senior citizens are, Jonathan, and you have the president's people writing op-eds and, and telling cable news reporters that, you know, if seniors die, seniors die. You have Republicans that are lieutenant governors in Texas saying, well, you know what, grandparents, they just, you know what, they're going to be willing to die so the economy doesn't go go down too badly. This is the new argument that's being made by Donald Trump's supporters that, yes, a lot of people are going to die. And, well, that's not as, as troubling as a bad economy. But that go is, ahead, Jonathan. I'm sorry to interrupt. No, the point is well taken. And that is, you're right. That is That has become the rallying cry from certain parts of, of the right, suggesting that this is a sacrifice that some Americans are willing to make to keep the economy going. Obviously, it's in everyone's interest for the economy to do well, but public health should be coming first. Uh, the president here, we saw his tweet yesterday. He laid, out, he laid it out pretty plainly for us. He accused the media of weird, that the media is behind, the, is the driving force behind the efforts to keep the country closed, to keep it shuttered. And he says it's because the media wants that to happen because it would be detrimental to his reelection efforts. And politics are at the forefront of his mind, according to our reporting and others, as he looks at this. But it's not the media that's suggesting the country remain closed. It are scientists, it is doctors, and perhaps most importantly, the nation's governors who are at the hot spots right now. Governor Cuomo here in New York, obviously California, Washington State. It's seemingly by the day we have more and more states advising lockdowns, suggesting people stay home for the next two or three weeks, Joe. Uh, and it is only going to get worse. And I keep coming back to what Governor Cuomo said yesterday, Joe, that New York is going through it now, even though its apex is probably still a couple weeks away. But New York is just foreshadowing what's going to happen to the rest of the country. Other parts of the country, That's Florida right. included, are going to be dealing with the brunt of what New York is going through right now. Well, I hear one doctor after another saying Florida is going to be the next hotspot. What's so... Let's show that image of the New York Post again, if we can, uh, because can you imagine, Mika, you know, more people are going to be dying of, of the coronavirus in the United States uh, by, by just, uh, multitudes than died on 9-11. But could you imagine if we required New York City cops and New York City firefighters to be fighting uh, the, the, the fires and, and the death and destruction that day in garbage bags. Yeah. The people that you are looking at in the, the, the front of the New York Post, those are our firefighters. Those are our police officers on 9-11, except they're going to be working on a virus that will end up killing more Americans that were killed in Iraq, killed in Afghanistan, killed in the entire war on terror. And what we're talking about war, because the president brought this up, Mika, before surrendering. You know who we're throwing away when Larry Kudlow and Stephen Moore and Donald Trump and people for Catholic magazines mm -hmm. are saying, you know, people, you know what, people have to die. There's a story. Senior citizens. Uh, senior citizens. Grandparents. Well, and, and there was a story in the New York Times about a lawyer who, a uh, big spread about a lawyer who influenced the president with two arguments, that senior citizens were going to die anyway, they were unproductive, and they cost a lot of money. They cost a lot of money. Really? Right? So there's the logic that the president has taken forward. And who's being abandoned? It's World War II vets who gave their entire life, now in their 90s, the frailest among us, and they're being abandoned. You're seeing Korean war vets in the golden years of their life after giving their all to their country, being abandoned by this president. You're seeing Vietnam vets who went through hell, not only at war, but when they came home, they were treated like garbage. But you know what? They still love their country. They still wave their flag. They're still proud still proud that they went and fought for their country when they were called while well, people like Donald Trump stayed home and went to elite colleges and dodged the draft. But those Vietnam vets, they're being left behind. And it seems that Republicans now are making the argument, let the World War II vets die, let the Korean War vets die, let the Vietnam vets die, let, let everybody in that generation die 
because we're worried about Boeing. We don't want Boeing, who got, by the way, a $17 billion bailout by right. this package after killing people because of their selfishness, because of their greediness. I mean, all these other countries, the, well, all these other companies with stock buybacks, the same thing happened there. We have Republicans. We have people like Lindsey Graham and Rick Scott more concerned about Boeing than unemployed people in their own state. And I understand with Rick Scott because he cut unemployment benefits so low in Florida that Florida actually has the worst unemployment benefits in America because of Rick Scott. But Rick Scott was worried about unemployed Americans. Unemployed Americans giving too much money while he had no problem with Boeing getting a $17 billion bailout uh, after killing people because of their selfishness and their greediness. Mika, the priorities, I've never in my life seen the priorities laid out in such a stark way between one party and the other. Now, as you know, I'm not a Democrat. There are a lot of things that Democrats do that drive me crazy. I, 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 I couldn't, I mean, I watched the first Democratic debate and I just looked in at wonderment and had, at how far left Twitter had pulled the party. But there is no doubt, if you're talking about the party of life right now, right. Uh, as, as uh, the American conservative wrote, right now, these conservatives are making uh, Democrats who are pro-choice actually look more pro-life because they're only worried about the unborn. It is the born. It is the weakest among us. It is senior citizens who they're ready to euthanize because they want Boeing's corporate earnings to not dip too, too, too low. They want to make sure that people that own businesses in their district or in their states will keep giving them campaign contributions. So this, it's, I don't know what – I grew up in a Baptist church, and I heard a lot about abortion and on the, the front of, end of life and youth, uh, euthanizing uh, seniors on I mean, this the, the other side of life. Insanity. And, and, and let me just be clear. If we have scientists and we have doctors and we have medical professionals – who have used, who've spent their lives using their God-given skills to save lives. And you have the ability to help them save lives. And you are telling the president not to do that. That is killing. That is, in fact, that's, uh, there's no way that you can say, well, abortion's bad, but killing a senior citizen, uh, and by the way, it's now the nurse that died in the hospital was 48 years old and healthy. By the way, I got bad news for you. A lot of 30 and 40-year-olds are getting this and dying of it. So this argument that we're going to just let senior citizens die because they're no longer productive, that's the argument that is taking hold in the Republican
Dollamore Daily, and I'm Jesse Dollamore. Yesterday, Donald Trump held a press conference, a coronavirus-related press conference, in the Rose Garden at the White House. Literal steps away from the Oval Office. Sacred ground to some, not to Trump. And at this press conference, there were a few moments that I want to talk about. I'm going to play four separate clips, all very brief. 
I know how everybody hates uh, being subjected to Trump. But these clips are, well, one is just Trump, but the others are journalism. Real questions, valid questions being asked, and this human tapeworm, this, this, this sickening virus of a human being, Donald Trump, takes it upon himself to take offense and then act like a baby or say racist things, or storm out, ultimately, is what he did. First, and I have talked about this in the past, that Donald Trump has come very close to having his, what I call a mission accomplished moment, akin to what uh, George W. Bush did when he flew in onto the aircraft carrier with the big sign above his head giving a speech on the deck of the aircraft carrier that said, mission accomplished relative to the Iraq war, when we would be there for years and years and years after that speech. There was no mission accomplished yet. Some would argue there was never a mission accomplished. I, I would be one of them. But Donald Trump said something very troubling and remarkably daft. Maybe even, even for him. Let's, let's take a look. Challenge and hardship and danger. America has risen to the task we have met the moment, and we have prevailed. Americans do whatever it takes to find solutions. Good evening, I'm Erin Burnett. Out front tonight, how stupid does Trump think we Americans are? The president's excuse for his embarrassing press conference, where he sided with Vladimir Putin over his own intelligence chiefs, does not add up. We are learning tonight that driven by fear of resignations in the intelligence community, the president decided that he would say he misspoke during one of the multiple times that he took Putin's side against America's in that press conference. And so, after meeting with top aides today, President Trump read from a prepared statement, offering up, frankly, what seems to be a dog-ate-my-homework excuse on how things went terribly wrong in Helsinki. And a key sentence in... Dr. Robert Redfield was totally misquoted in the media on a statement about the fall season and the virus... Totally misquoted. You were accurately quoted, correct? I'm accurately quoted in the Washington Post. What Dr. Redfield clearly was asking for, just like we asked for every American to follow the guidelines, he's saying, please add to that guidelines getting your flu shot and making and Dr. sure you're protected. You say there's a good chance that COVID will not come back. We don't and know. And COVID comes back. It's in a very small confined area that we put out. Well, the, the great thing is we'll be able to find it earlier this time. It might not come back at all, Jeff. It may not come back at all. He's talking about a worst-case scenario where you have a big flu and you have some corona. But it's all possible. It's also possible it doesn't come back at all. We will have coronavirus in the fall. I am convinced of that. There will be coronavirus in the fall. So uh, joining us now, director of the Center for Infectious Disease Research and Policy and a professor in the medical school at the University of Minnesota, Dr. Michael Osterholm. He's the author of the book entitled Deadliest Enemy, Our War Against Killer Germs. So, Doctor, who's right, the president or his top doctors? Well, first of all, let me just fine-tune the message and help you understand that right now, more, no, not more than 5% of the U.S. population has been infected with this virus. We know that this is a highly infectious virus. It will keep transmitting into people. It will try to infect people until 60 or 70% of the population is infected. That's when we develop this herd immunity. So you can just do the own, your own mental math from 5% to 60 to 70%. There's a lot of transmission left to come. It could even stay through the summer, into the fall, well into the following year. So it's here. There is no question about that. It's like the law of, of gravity. It's here. We're going to see a lot more transmission. Uh, do you share the concerns of Dr. Fauci and others uh, that the fall and winter months may be the worst months like we saw in 1918, 1919, uh, because of it coinciding with flu season? Does that present unique challenges that we need to prepare for today? 
Yeah, I, I think the, the issue with now that this is a coronavirus, not a flu virus, we're not exactly sure where it's going to go next. I can tell you for certain it is going to infect millions and millions of more people in this country over the months ahead. We could very easily see huge peaks, much larger than we've seen already in this country, uh, occur over the next 6 to 12 months. Uh, the bottom line message is that we could have multiple peaks. We could have one this summer, one later in the fall, one next spring. And again, just keep thinking of that number. 60 to 70 percent infected as opposed to the less than 5 percent now. So I think we have to prepare for that, those big peaks. Just exactly when they'll occur, I don't know. And I think that's important because I don't want people to come away and say, if we don't have a, a fall peak like has been predicted, that we are wrong. No, you will continue to see lots and lots of transmission. We have to prepare for that. We literally are in the second inning of a nine-inning game right now. So, Doctor, how do we live through that? How do we, how does our economy get restarted? Uh, how do we survive that economically? How do we survive that socially? How do we survive that culturally as a country uh, as we move forward over what likely will be at least an 18-month process? Well, first of all, it's really important that we look at the leadership issue. And I, this is not a partisan statement. I've served roles in the last five presidential administrations. Here in the state of Minnesota, I worked for two Republican governors, two Democratic governors, one independent governor. No one could tell you my partisan politics. We need fireside chat capability over the days and weeks ahead. Yep because it's going to be a really big challenge, and we've got to have a way for us to rally around that. That's the number one ingredient right now for getting through it. Number two, we've got to greatly expand testing. We've got to have people stop coming on shows like this saying test, 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 because we don't have any tests. The tests basically are limited by the number of reagents. We need a national initiative right now to figure out how to make these chemicals that then can do the test, because we do need to test. But we just don't have the capability, so that doesn't help. The second thing we have, uh, in terms of public health programs, we have to do is the contact tracing and follow-up will be important. We have to do that. The third thing we've got to make sure that our hospitals are capable of handling these surges. That means also in protecting our healthcare workers. We are losing hundreds of healthcare workers on the job every day in these big um, uh, outbreak areas because they're getting infected at work. So we've got to protect them. Those are all parts of then allowing society to move forward and keeping businesses as we can open. But uh, until we do these other things, uh, we're going to have a hard time reopening and staying reopened. So, okay, minus the tests, uh, all the other measures that you just mentioned, prepping hospitals, et cetera, does that create the potential for any type of scenario where we do not see the coronavirus in the fall? No, we're going to see it. You know, it's like gravity. I can't emphasize this enough. There is not a debate here. I mean, if you, if you want somebody to debate you on gravity, then you can have this debate. But the bottom line is <laughs> until we get 60 or 70 percent of the population infected, we are going to see this virus continue to spread. Look at countries like Singapore, where everybody held them out as the standard to say, look at, they've controlled this thing. They, they know how to do this. They know how to test and contact trace. They're now in a state of national emergency where yesterday they had the highest number of cases reported. So, again, this is a, going to be a constant battle. And whether we have a big peak this week or that week, we're going to have lots of peak activities where we're going to be highly challenged. That's what we have to mentally begin to prepare for as well as all the administrative issues. And until we do that, we're going to be in this uh, a fool's kind of position of assuming that, well, if we just bend the curve now, get into summer, we're okay. Please wake up, world. We are going to be in this for months to come, and that means we have to prepare accordingly. Willie. Dr. Osterholm, it's Willie Geis. Thanks for being on this morning and bringing some of that truth Thank that you bring. Um, wow. I want to ask you about the state of Georgia specifically, because the President of the United States yesterday sort of turned on his heel and condemned Governor Kemp in Georgia for opening parts of the economy. That will begin tomorrow. Governor Kemp says some businesses can be open. Yesterday in an interview up there in Minneapolis, you said that states like Georgia are headed for a train wreck. Could you be specific about what you mean there and game that out a little bit? Well, first of all, anytime you're opening up in a situation where you already have cases increasing, where your uh, systems are already overstressed, and now you're making it seem to people that they can, in fact, go out and have these close contacts, you're just adding gasoline to the fire. 
And so uh, why? In a state like Minnesota, for example, we still have had challenges, but we've had incredibly uh, high uh, compliance with the distancing issues. We've actually been able to flatten this issue and slow it down. But had we not, we would have seen this, uh, this grow very quickly, too. So Georgia is really sitting on a situation where I think in three to four weeks it will take that long for these cases to develop from people coming back out into the public and so forth. If they do that, if they do that. Remember, a governor saying they can open doesn't mean that they will open. I have a sense from my context in Georgia, a lot of them are actually questioning the governor's movement themselves. So I, I think that it's just a matter of, again, simple uh, uh, infectious disease epidemiology. Put your people in harm's way, they're going to be harmed. And that's what's going to happen in states like Georgia when they have the data showing the virus is still being transmitted. And as we talk about testing, uh, you pointed to something I was interested in because I've heard this from emergency room doctors and ICU doctors who work in New York City, who I'm in close touch with, who report back after their long shifts there about false negatives in testing. You say 15 to 20 percent of coronavirus tests give a false negative. One ICU doctor I talked to said they're very worried about this idea of at-home testing because people don't know how to use them. You have to be trained in how to test right. for coronavirus. So you could get more false negatives there, more people thinking they're free and clear and going out into society. So how should we be testing? Well, first of all, let's just take a step back and realize we did run into a very serious situation when the CDC was not able to get the testing out that we needed early on. But then to play catch-up, the FDA has basically, in many ways, uh, backed away from the very responsibility that they should have of assuring that the tests that are on the market are effective and they work the way they can. Under this emergency authorization process, there are now at least 45 of these PCR tests, the kind that test for the virus, and over 90 and antibody test. And in those cases, many of these have not been vetted, have not been sufficiently investigated to know how well they work. We know with some of the antibody tests, as was described by one senior FDA official, these, a lot of these are crappy. So one of the things we have to do immediately is the FDA has to take control of this. Right now it's the wild, wild west with what's available for testing. We have to assure we have the highest quality tests on the market. That'll help a lot. But even then, they're not going to be perfect tests, and we have to take a look carefully at how they're used. Right now, if you were to use the antibody test in most locations in this country, half of all the positives you would find would be false positives, telling people they're protected when they're not. Imagine if I told you and you were a healthcare worker going into a room full of COVID virus that you wanted to be sure you're protected. You have positive antibody, but oh, by the way, one out of two chances it's not real. We've got to do better on these tests. And so, again, just test, 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 and the answer. One, we've got to have tests. Two, they have to work. And number three, we've got to know how to use them. And we're not having that discussion yet. It's all about what the numbers of the day are. And that is not getting us to an effective and comprehensive testing program in this country, which we desperately need, by the way. We desperately need that.
like a guiding star. I'll be there for you if you should need me. You don't have to change a thing. I love you just the way you are. So come with me and share the view. I'll help you see forever too. Hold me now, touch me now. on this idea of corroborated incredible because I think people that don't understand how an intelligence product comes together and how it's used may think that this is a, a wave off and this may work for Trump, some of Trump's base but, but, but let's do two things. One, after 9-11 there was a threat, there was a plot that was credible enough that everyone still takes their shoes off before they board a plane. Now credibility is on a spectrum, right? And in this plot was credible enough that we briefed our allies, we briefed the military special operations, we had all of the officials who are high enough up the chain of command to live and work in Washington, D.C., sit down in the Situation Room in March in the White House to figure out what to do about it. So to take on this sort of feeble defense that the White House seems to have landed on that, oh, it wasn't credible. And let me just ask you to, to explain this, too. A president who cares about national security and who cares about the safety of their troops, a normal president is made aware of any threat to troops on a battlefield. And this president was made aware enough of the threat posed by Iran and Soleimani to blow him up. So this is not a president shielded from threats to the troops on the battlefield. That's right, Nicole. So we collect intelligence in Afghanistan, for example, from detainees. We collect that information. And some of that information is used to form finished analysis, analytic products that the intelligence community produces and gives to the president and other senior policymakers. But a presidential daily brief book, and you've seen some and I've seen many as well, they contain both those finished analytic pieces that explain, hey, we've got some information and here's our view of it, but they also sometimes provide some of the raw reporting, the raw collection. And presidents often are told, hey, we've got this tip or we've got this information from a human source or we've collected this information. We're still working on what it means and what our options are. But it's totally inconceivable and I think, frankly, an outright lie that the White House would have to wait until everything was buttoned up and verified to present it to the president. I think, Nicole, what's going on here is that either they told the president and he forgot, dismissed, or ignored it, and I think that's likely, or maybe they said to him, look, we're going to work on this, and he now, wants to, he now wants to disavow that he knew about it because he hasn't taken action against it, because I think, frankly, he has not wanted to take tough action against Russia all along. Jeremy, three former intelligence officials said there's no way this wasn't in the PDB. One former intelligence official said it would have been the first item in the PDB under a headline along the lines of 
threats to American soldiers in Afghanistan. Do you agree with that assessment? I do, and not only that, but this is exactly the kind of information that would go up, for example, through the Defense Intelligence Agency or through the J-2, the Intel staff on the Joint Staff. This would get in the hands of the Chairman of the Joint Chiefs, the Secretary of Defense, not to mention the CIA Director and Director of National Intelligence. All of those people spent a lot of time with the President. It's inconceivable that for the last six months, not one of them said, hey, Mr. President, we have a direct threat to our troops. It is just outlandish, ridiculous. The, the, the fact that Kylie McEnany is standing there saying that, I think she's just insulting the intelligence of everybody who works in national security. Claire, let's turn to the idea of oversight. Um, these former intelligence officials said we're asking the wrong question when we asked why wasn't the Gang of Eight briefed. This should have been briefed to the Armed Services Committee, should have been briefed to the Intel Committees. I mean, where, why, is Congress being cut out because the whole process is so broken? I mean, what are your questions? Maybe even worse than that, Nicole. Um, let's, let's look at this. At 1 o'clock this afternoon, the president's press representative said he still hadn't been briefed. Now, let that sink in. He's been playing golf. He's been tweeting stuff. But he hasn't said, hey, I need to get to the bottom of this. This is really important. Uh, our, our enemy, Russia, is putting a price on the heads of our military. Now, Let's think about what's going on this afternoon in addition to that. They're doing a briefing at the White House for Republicans only. That is unheard of at moments like this. It's the United States of America, and one of the few places that we've managed to keep it united is support for our troops. This should be a bipartisan briefing of if you don't want the whole Senate, then it should certainly be the Intelligence Committee with Gina Haspel answering questions. It should certainly be the Armed Services Committee with the Esper answering questions. It should certainly be the Foreign Relations Committee with Pompeo answering questions. And it should be Republicans and Democrats. But the notion that they are asking the Republicans to run up to the White House to get their political instructions, to learn how to lie for this president at a moment that Putin has a price on the heads of our military in Afghanistan. This is a scandal. I mean, they wanted to make a big deal about Benghazi. This makes Benghazi look like playing with toys. This is a big deal, and they are not treating it like it's a big deal. Claire, let me be um, as pointed as I can about this question. So Trump wins, and he likens the American intelligence community to Nazis. Um, he's there a few weeks. He asks Comey to see to it to let Flynn go. Comey refuses. He fires Comey, and he's spent the better part of three years smearing him. He uh, sets his sights on McCabe, smears and fires him a few days, I think, short of his pension vesting because his wife had the audacity to run for office. Uh, he moves on to Robert Mueller, who served George W. Bush after the attacks of 9-11 and continued and served Obama, attacked his 17 angry Democrats. Republicans say not one word. Not about the intelligence community being compared to Nazis. Not about Jim Comey appointed George W. Bush's deputy attorney general. Not about Robert Mueller, George W. Bush's FBI director. Not about the Mueller investigators who put away a lot of bad guys over the course of their careers. Republicans still, mom. Um, then Bill Taylor, uh, Ambassador Taylor, testifies during impeachment and said Ukrainians died while Donald Trump was diddling around with their military assistance that Congress approved. Republicans approved. They say nothing. Dead Ukrainians didn't move them. Now you got dead American soldiers and Republicans say nothing. What is the what? When do you cease to be a party if you say nothing? And what's next? Well, and don't forget that um, Trump stood up next to Putin in Helsinki and said, I believe him instead of my own intelligence community. I think he's telling the truth, Putin. Instead of the men and women, by the way, the majority of the people who serve in the intelligence committee are veterans. So here's what's happened here. We've had a, this is a repeat of Ukraine. There is someone in the intelligence community that is so upset about this, that knows what's going on, that has leaked this, because they are so worried about our troops and realize this president doesn't care. He cares more about a stupid tweet than he cares about the lives of Americans risking their lives for us in Afghanistan against the Taliban. 
So, I mean, this is really what's going on here. This is a repeat. Now, Vindman, you know, we saw what happened to Vindman when he did his patriotic duty. The question is, will they now ferret out who this patriot is? Will this patriot come forward and will they do the same thing to him or her? Hi, this is me. This past Friday, many of us celebrated Juneteenth. I did. And yet so many others didn't and haven't. As a matter of fact, there are three states that still do not recognize it. North Dakota, South Dakota, and Hawaii. How did it feel to celebrate freedom that we're still fighting for? It felt and feels too familiar. I know that dance. I've heard those songs. It was an 18-year fight to get Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s birthday a national holiday. Yet, it was a fight I was not willing to lose. It was a fight that many of you joined. And I thank you. But here we are again and again and again and again. I'm not one who make believes. I know that leaves are green. They only turn to brown. When autumn comes around, I know just what I say today is not yesterday. And all things have an ending. But what I'd like to know is when will the day come that we let hate go? Or do I have to concede that for human beings, it's just impossible? But if life can have an ending, all things can have an ending. Systemic racism can have an ending. Police brutality can have an ending. Economic repression of black and brown people can have an ending. A movement without action is a movement standing still. To those who say they care, move more than your mouth. Move your feet to the polls and use your hands to vote. The future is in your hands. We have the power to vote and we can make a change. The youngest at 18 and the oldest at 110 can make a difference. Make your plan now to vote because right now there are forces trying to take your vote away in November. I hear voices on the left. I hear voices on the right. I've been following everything that's being said. But what I have not heard is a unanimous commitment to atone for the sins of this country. I've heard the person in the highest place of this nation say there are fine people on both sides. That sounds noncommittal to me. I have a great relationship with the blacks. Peaceful protesters called thugs. Immigrants called rapists. And from the very place that civilization began, Africa, I've heard this commander-in-chief call it an S-H-I-T hole. Wow. One day, you will show that you're sorry because action speaks louder than words. And the appalling silence by some is deafening. The only way any of us can show repentance is by how we live, not what we say. Lift your heart to the now, for the forever. Change those words into action. Black lives do matter. And this is not another digital viral trend moment or hashtag. It has to be the beginning of an end of all this bullish. It is our lives, literally. Yes, all lives do matter. But they only matter when black lives matter too. You know, it's a sad day 
when I can see better than your 2020 vision. The universe is watching us. Forget about a hundred, a thousand years from now. What will we have done by this time next year? I'm talking about you. I'm talking about me. I'm talking about every single body. Let's do something. Let's make a difference. I thank you, and God bless you. Hey, everybody. The George Wilder Jr. Show is now in session. The finest internet radio talk show and podcast in the land of Illinois on the north side of the great, great city of Chicago. You are now on the air. Fun time, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you for joining me. Have a great time. The U.S. leads the world in coronavirus cases by a lot. The U.S. is just over 4% of the world's population, yet represents 31% total cases. And the president somehow thinks that's a good thing. When we have a lot of cases, I don't look at that as a bad thing. I look at that as, in a certain respect, as being a good thing, because it means our testing is much better. So if we were testing a million people instead of 14 million people, we would have far few cases, right? So I view it as a badge of honor. Really, it's a badge of honor. It's a great tribute to the testing and all of the work that a lot of professionals have done. 
I mean, aside from the fact that most believe that this president has botched this crisis from the get-go, and this will be known in history worldwide as a human catastrophe that he could have prevented. Um, and he's trying to deflect at all times. And Willie and Mike, he's uh, tweeting again all sorts of crazy things. Uh, once again, uh, tweeting conspiracy theories about Joe, falsely accusing him of murder, talking about the death of a young staffer in his congressional office years ago, and calling him dangerous to walk the streets. And I'll just say, I'll take a point of personal privilege here. That's sick. Donald, you're a sick person. You're a sick person to put this family through this, to put her husband through this, to do this just because you're mad at Joe because Joe got you again today, because he speaks the truth and he speaks plainly about your lack of interest and empathy in others and your lack of ability to handle this massive human catastrophe, the fact that you've made it worse and that you make it worse every day and that you won't even wear a mask to protect people from your germs. But the germs you're spreading on Twitter, first of all, Twitter, you shouldn't be allowing this and you should be taking these tweets down and you should be ashamed of yourself. You'll be hearing from me on this because this is BS. But Donald, you're a sick person. You're really a cruel, sick, disgusting person. And you can keep tweeting about Joe, but you're just hurting other people. And of course, you're hurting yourself. Willie, why don't Thanks for checking out MSNBC on YouTube and make sure you subscribe to stay up to date on the day's biggest stories. And you can click on any of the videos around us to watch more for Morning Joe. And It almost seems impossible that Donald Trump could sink any lower than he already has on Twitter with insulting people's intelligence, uh, going after their personal appearances, things like that. But this morning, he actually managed to outdo himself when he said one of the most horrid and disgusting things that he has ever said since becoming president of the United States. Here it is, spread out over two tweets. 3,000 people did not die in the two hurricanes that hit Puerto Rico. When I left the island after the storm had hit, they had anywhere from six to 18 deaths as time went by. It did not go up by much. Then a long time later, they started to report really large numbers, like 3,000. This was done by the Democrats in order to make me look as bad as possible when I was successfully raising billions of dollars to help rebuild Puerto Rico. If a person died for any reason, like old age, just add them onto the... So let's look at what the president said yesterday. President Trump attempting to walk back his statements from Helsinki, where he sided with the Russian state over the U.S. government.
Hatred from the mighty and the mighty from the small. 